am Julie Moran, and I am so thrilled to bring you my podcast, Limitless, Boldly Tackle Your Next Chapter. Today on my Limitless podcast, I'm speaking with financial guru, Jean Chotsky. For over 25 years, she's been the financial editor of NBC's The Today Show. She's the host of the Her Money podcast and is author of numerous bestsellers, including Women With Money. Today, we delve into our relationship with money, how and why it affects us, and what can be done about it. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You know, I've watched you on the Today Show for so many years, giving such incredible practical financial advice. How did someone with an English major get into this field? <laughs> oh man, uh, kind of like you, I think I, I got in through journalism, mm. um, and and I've watched you for for many many years as well. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you. I I got in through getting a job at a business magazine and having to report on all of these things that I didn't really understand and and learned along the way. Well, you are just, um, every time I see you or hear you, your advice is just so spot on. But let's talk about money. Why is it so taboo to talk about money? Many of us were just not brought up talking about it. In some cases, our parents or our grandparents shut us down when we tried to talk about it. They told us it was rude. They told us this was not something that we should be doing. And I think it got, it became just sort of part of the fabric of society that, that this was one of those topics that you just weren't supposed to touch. And the problem with that is that although you're not supposed to touch it, everybody has to deal with it. Yes. Um, and managing your money is just one of those life skills that if you haven't figured out at least the basics you're going to have trouble cobbling together the adult life that is probably part of your dreams. You know, when you, when you think about what you want going forward, whether it's a house or starting a business or building a, a relationship, a marriage that, that goes the long term, if you can't handle your money, all of those things are going to be harder. Wow. You know, and we women approach money differently than men, don't we? Why is that? We're wired differently. I wrote a book before the pandemic came out called Women with Money, and I interviewed hundreds of women before I put my fingers on the keyboard to figure out what it is we want from our money. What do we want our money to do for us? And what I heard over and over and over again in, in different ways was we want safety, we want security, we want stability. Women told me they didn't just want a home, they wanted a home with a paid off mortgage. And they didn't just want a car, they wanted a car with all the most up-to-date safety features. And when it came to savings, they really just wanted a pile of money in the bank. And the problem with that, although we should all have emergency funds in the bank, is that this driving need for safety and security can cost us in terms of 
growing the financial nest egg that we need. And and when you think about it, if you just think about that money in the bank, it's earning what? One tenth of one percent interest and has been for the last handful of years. I mean, the returns are just pathetic. We have to get ourselves to the point where we can take some risk, where we can actively participate in the markets in order to make our money work as hard for us as we're working for ourselves. And one of the best things that has come out of the pandemic has really been the rise of small investors starting to dip a toe in the water. I think many of them were just bored at mm. home and and or had a stimulus check and thought, well, maybe I can make a little bit more out of this. But we're we're seeing more and more people investing than we have in a long time. And that's a good thing. You know, in your latest book, I Love Women With Money, you say that women need to conquer the four S's. What are they and how how do you do it? Yeah, so the four S's, I I think I just alluded to three of them. There's safety, stability, security, and savings. Okay. And we can conquer them by making sure that we've got a plan in place to take care of our emergency needs. Again, through the pandemic, one of the things that we learned was that It is not optional to have an emergency cushion. An emergency cushion is a must-have. It should be a fully formed emergency cushion. It should be an emergency cushion that's got a good three to six months worth of living expenses in it. Um, If you had to use your emergency cushion through the pandemic, that's completely understandable. It's been an emergency, but now's the time to start rebuilding it with automatic transfers back into that separate account. And once you know you've got your emergency cushion, once you know you have life insurance in place to take care of the people that you love if, if you were unable to take care of them yourself or disability insurance to take care of you if you were unable to to earn a living. Once you know that you've got the basic protections in place, then we feel a little more comfortable taking some risk. The the other way to get beyond them is to just fake it till you make it. <laughs> and, and I know I yeah, I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but it it really works. The the problem with investing unlike a lot of money questions, is that there are no perfect answers, right? If, if somebody said, you know, hey, Julie, when's the market going to go down? When, is, when are interest rates going to go up? What is going to happen next week, next month, next year in the market? You would have to say, I don't know. Right. And I would have to say, I don't know. And those sorts of unanswerable questions in particular make women who like to know the answer to every question before we ask it, they make us really uncomfortable. And so one way to get over our fear of these unknowns is to just do it and see that the world doesn't end. And so if you can get yourself investing through a 401k, putting money into an IRA, opening a brokerage account, just doing it on a regular basis and watch what happens in a diversified portfolio. I'm not I'm not saying go, you know, put all your money into a meme stock or go try to buy the latest and greatest. I'm saying, you know, do it do it in a smart, level headed 
way. Buy a, buy a good, basic, inexpensive index fund. Add money to it and watch yourself succeed, and that can be a confidence booster. Great advice. Now, what if your spouse has a different money story? How do you deal with that? First, you have to know what that spouse's money story is, and you have to know what your own money story is. And when I say money story, I'm really talking about the attitudes about money that you carry based on what went on in your childhood home. Mm. Um, We... We are fortunate if our parents teach us about money, if they teach us the basics about this is how you build credit and this is how you save for a goal. But what they really do without realizing it is pass along an awful lot of messages about money just with their day-to-day behavior, just by the fact that they're really tense about money or that they sort of live a boom and bust lifestyle where they spend every penny they have and then they don't have anything for a while or that they argue about money. And, and as kids, we take all of this in and it influences the way that we behave with our money as adults you need to understand your story and and what it is driving you to do. And you need to understand your spouse or your partner's story and what it's driving them to do. And if you're not sure what it is, you can you can get to it by asking yourself some some pretty basic questions about money. You can ask yourself, what was the environment like? where I grew up, um, what messages do did my parents pass along about money? Do I remember a feeling of tension when the bills arrived? I mean, those sorts of things will, will try to bring back those memories. And then, you know, if you have a particular behavior that, that you know is influenced by, by your past and, and you can't wish this stuff away. You can't really unsee it. But what you can do is come up with a strategy to deal with it. So, for example, I, I wrote in the book about a young woman who was raised with parents who were incredibly frugal. I, they didn't spend money. They made her feel bad about spending money. It wasn't until she was almost out of the house that she discovered they actually had plenty of money. But as a result, she today finds it very, very difficult to spend money Hmm. on anything for her, particularly anything that is more of a want than a need. And so what she's done in reaction is to set up a separate account that she funds that she knows is just for those things that she wants. And because it's a separate pool of money, she has an easier time spending that money on her. Well, that that's a cr- a great way to go about it and a great way to look at it. You know, when I told my friends I was talking to you, they had so many questions for you. So if you don't mind, um, I'm just going to throw out some names. And they had questions. And I want to start with Barbara. And Barbara wanted to know, do you think everyone should have a financial planner? And how do you pick a good one? Um, it's a great question, Barbara. It's a question I get asked all the time. I don't think everybody should have a financial planner. I think at some point in your life, you may decide that you either want one or you need one. And 
Um, at that point, sure. You know, when you are, when you're trying to reach for specific life goals and you're looking for a roadmap to get you there, um, I think having a financial advisor is a great idea. The first time my husband and I saw a financial advisor, we were buying our first house and we were trying to figure out what was a reasonable amount of money to spend on that house based on what we had and based on what we were earning and sitting down with this advisor was a really, really helpful exercise. The other big reason I think people need advisors is when they know they're not going to do it themselves. Mm. Um, That could just be because you're not interested in doing it yourself. It could be because you don't have time to do it yourself. And Either of those is is fine. It's just important to recognize that you are not going to do it yourself and that somebody has to be paying attention to your money. So I have a tool, actually, we launched on our website, hermoney.com, which is a way to find a referral to a vetted financial advisor for free. And and that's how I would recommend you go about it. If you go to hermoney.com, you'll see a tab that says find an advisor. You click it. We have a partnership with an organization called WealthRamp. And basically, you're going to fill out a short questionnaire that says what you're looking for in a financial advisor. It could be, I want to work with a woman. It could be, I want to work with somebody who gets paid in X, Y, or Z way. It could be, I want to work with somebody who has a specialty in divorce because I'm getting a divorce. You, you tell us what you need and we'll serve up generally three names and then nobody's going to call you and, and there's no cost for this. You you have to, at that point, take it upon yourself to reach out to them. But these are all people who are fiduciaries, which means they're going to operate with your best interest in mind and they're all vetted. And so I feel good about making those recommendations. That's great to know. You once said there were five things if done over and over again would lead to financial success. Do you still agree with those five? I do. They haven't changed. I, I, you know, it's funny. I had been reporting on personal finance, maybe, I don't know, 15 years when I had this epiphany in the shower that it was really (laughs) all these five things. And if you could do them, then then you really didn't need any more advice. Um, The first one is you have to earn money. You have to earn a decent living. And I I chose the word decent pretty carefully because there is a lot of research out there that shows that once you've reached a level of being able to live comfortably, more money is not going to buy you more happiness. So you have to earn consistently a decent living. Then, and this is where many people get stuck and can't move beyond, You've got to spend less than you make yes. um, because that's the only way that you're going to be able to save money. And fortunately, today we have technology to help us with this. We can put money into a retirement account right out of our paycheck so that we never see it. We never touch it. We never spend it. And I want to see people saving 15% consistently of whatever they earn. And that money can include matching dollars that you get from your employer. Hmm. But 15% is generally going to be enough so that you know that you will get to a point where you can maintain a, a comparable standard of living in retirement. The third thing that you have to do is to invest the money that you're not spending. 
so that it can work as hard for you as you're working for yourself. And you want to invest it in a way that minimizes taxes. Um, I taped an episode of my podcast, which is called Her Money, um, all about IRAs and Roth IRAs and whether you should have your money in Roth funds or regular funds and how to make the most of them and get the best tax advantages. And so for people who haven't tuned in, um, I know there's tons of questions about about IRAs and 401ks and Roths, and, and that would be a really good place to start. Oh, I'll, um, be, I'll be tuning into that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you wouldn't think you could talk extensively for a whole podcast about IRAs, but but in fact, you can. And it, it was pretty, um, I thought it was pretty entertaining and interesting. Uh, the fourth step is that you got to protect this whole financial world that you're building um, and you want to do it in a way so that you know that that no disaster, a big one or a small one, can can pull the, the rock out from under you. And so that includes things like the emergency fund, but it also includes making sure you've got the appropriate health insurance, um, that you've got enough life insurance, that you've got a basic estate plan. We've learned this year how important it is to make sure that you've got um, people backing you up as your power of attorney and your your healthcare proxy in case somebody needs to make uh, decisions on your behalf for you. So really important things to do. And I know if you're listening and you haven't gone over your estate planning documents in the last couple of years, it's just time to do it again. Go over your beneficiaries, go over your documents, make sure it's all buttoned up. And the fifth thing on the list is that you got to figure out some way to give back that is meaningful to you, because although more money doesn't provide a happiness boost, giving back, having a, a practice of gratitude actually makes us happier. It is a proven stress reducer. It's a resilience booster. It, it boosts optimism. It it's you know, there should be a pill that we can take, but we can't. So instead, we have to figure out a way to give back that that works for us. I totally agree. Now, a lot of my friends said they are emotional spenders, and they want to know why and how they can stop it. So the why is because you're human. <laughs> um, you know, this is we are just wired this way. And, and there there are so many interesting studies on this. Um, they look at our brains, researchers, neuro neuroscientists and neurobiologists. They hook people up to MRIs. They look at our brains in the process of making decisions about money, and they see that when something that we want comes into our view, the pleasure centers in our brains light up, and that when we get that reward, when we buy the thing, whatever it happens to be, we get a rush of the feel-good chemical dopamine. It mm. is like chocolate. It's like sex. It is incredibly powerful, and there's this feedback loop that says, hey, when I buy something, I feel good. And so you learn to do it over and over and over again. And unfortunately, that's not the only emotional reason that we spend. I mean, that's that's the big one. But we also spend because we feel sad, we feel angry, 
we feel we we look to solve all the emotional um, wounds that we have by spending. And so the way to stop yourself is a by recognizing this, mm. by understanding that this is what's what's going on. And, you know, much like we understand that when we are having a particularly bad day or when we just had a a, a fight with our spouse, we're going to reach for the Oreos. Right. If you <laughs> if you're an emotional eater, you probably learned that about yourself. You know, I'm going to have a bad day. Oh, where's the haagen And if you instead reach for the computer and just, you know, head to your favorite website and do a little damage spending money, that's something to know about yourself too. The best way to stop is to put a game plan in place that includes something of an either or strategy. When I'm feeling stressed, I'm going to go, instead of to the computer, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go for a walk. When I'm feeling sad, I'm going to call my girlfriend. I'm going to just put something else in the loop that you're going to do instead of shopping. That can help you get away from it. And pausing helps too. So if you if you hit the computer and you put something in your cart, just leave it. There are two benefits to this. The first is that you may decide you don't want it anyway. The second, and, and people who do a lot of online shopping have learned this, is that immediately, because they, they follow you around, immediately they are going to send you a coupon for 15 or 20% off. So <laughs> if you do end up buying it, you're going to get it for less. <laughs> that's, that's great. Pause, 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 delay, and then hope you get a coupon. <laughs> you know, my friend Susan wanted to know, do you have a general guideline for investing and saving? You know, back in 2017, you had a very famous tweet that got a lot <laughs> of attention. Yeah, and and it's still the it's still true. This tweet. Um, these are these are benchmarks for the amount of money that you need to save for retirement. And and I I talk about these a lot on the podcast. I write a lot about them. I I continually get a lot of flack for them. This this tweet blew up because people didn't like these benchmarks because people hmm. thought the benchmarks were just insanely high. But before I tell you what they are. If you can get yourself to the point where you're saving that 15% year in and year out, you're going to hit these benchmarks. So just know that that if you're doing the right thing, the, the magic will happen as long as you're investing the money for the long term. So the, the benchmarks basically go that by the time you're 30 years old, you want to have one times your annual income, your annual current income put away for retirement. By the times you're by the time you're 40, three times, by the time you're 50, six times, by the time you're 60, eight times, and by the time you retire, 10 times. And the the purpose of this money is to replace about 45% of your pre-retirement income in retirement. The, these guidelines, by the way, were developed by Fidelity Investments, and they base them on people who earn between $50,000 a year and $300,000 a year. 
that'll get you to about 45% of your pre-retirement income. Then you'll have Social Security to layer on top, which should get you to that comfortable um, standard of living for 30 years. And if it was a pie chart, what would it look like? In terms of where your money's going? Yes. The pie chart is 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 a little squishy as pie charts are concerned um, because and and you know this if you live on on the coast or you live in a big city or you live somewhere where housing prices are just going crazy um, the pie chart's a little squishy because sometimes we end up spending more on housing than than I recommend in this pie chart but it's also kind of fungible so if you end up spending a little more on housing but you live in an urban area and you don't need a car, you can spend a little less on transportation and it all works out in the end. So in the form of a pie chart, 15% goes to savings and that is non-negotiable. But you can borrow from any of these other categories to feed the rest. Um, And so 35% to housing. And that's not just your rent or your mortgage payment. It's your homeowner's insurance, it's your property taxes, it's your maintenance, it's all the cost of housing. 12.5% to transportation, 12.5% to repayment of other debt. So if you've got student loans, that goes in that bucket. If you've got credit card debt that you're trying to whale on, that goes in that bucket. And the the last on the list is is 25%, and that's for the rest of your life. Mm, wow. I like the I like the looks of that pie chart. I've got to I got I to get working on that. <laughs> you know, we've we've said this before, but I want to just reiterate this. If you had a number one biggest concern women have about their finances, what would it be? Outliving their money. Mm. It's the number one concern that that people talk to me about all the time, and it's completely understandable. I mean, when you look at how long women are expected to live when you look at, I mean, the pandemic took us down a notch in terms of life expectancies, but they've really been growing. And the problem for women is, and again, it's been exacerbated in the pandemic. The problem for women is the gender wage gap is still all too large. It's particularly large for black women, for Latina women um, and and other women of color. And when you earn less, then you have less money flowing into those retirement accounts. Uh, Women are still the ones who take breaks from work to care for kids and care for older parents. And that means that we are stepping out and not putting again as much into those retirement accounts. We're not we're not getting social security credits in those years where we're not in the workforce. Add it all up and, and what you get is that when you get to the point where you're ready to retire, you have less money and then you need that money to last longer. And that just argues for being very, very strategic. I've, I've been um, at, at Her Money. We put up a whole week's worth of content this week. One of the things we talked about was the fact that so many women are taking, have taken a step back from the workforce during the pandemic uh, because we've had to, because we've had kids who are being remote schooled, because we've had older parents who needed 
help because somebody had to hold it all together at home. And when we looked at the wage gap between us and our spouses, we were still in many cases the lower earner. And so if somebody had to step back or step out, it was going to be us. And and the problem with with doing that is that when we end up going back into the workforce, generally we have to take a pay cut. We may not be able to get back in at the same level of seniority. We've lost access to our networks. It's a real blow. And so if you're at any point in your life thinking of taking a step back or a step out of the workforce. And it's it's not something that you're doing because you want to. I mean, there are many, many women and men who now want to stay home with their kids for a year or two or however many. And if this is on your list of wants, then then that's great. But if it's something that you're thinking of doing for financial reasons, you can't base the calculus on the salary versus the cost of care alone. You have to put all of these other factors into the mix. Sure you do. Well, we're running out of time, but one final question. What do you think is the best way forward for someone to understand why they make the decisions they do when it comes to money? I would encourage everybody to, once again, go to hermoney.com and take our money type personality quiz. This was developed with with the help of a PhD. And what we learn is that we are all, although we're all human, we all have a slightly different bent when it comes to money and understanding whether you are a producer or a nurturer or a visionary or a connoisseur or one of our five money types will help you understand what's driving you. And then once you take the test, we'll, we'll just send you a game plan so that you can strategize and move forward in a, in a way that will work for you. Well, Jean, thank you so much for coming on the show. You were fantastic. And anyone who wants to learn more about money and investing, they should absolutely subscribe to your podcast, Her Money. And if they want to learn the root for their financial decisions, I think they should get your book, Women With Money. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you again. It was a pleasure. Goodbye, Jean. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on Limitless Boldly Tackle Your Next Chapter. Subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know when new episodes drop. You can also keep up with me on Instagram at It's Me, Julie Moran. Stay bold, everybody.